Welcome back to Coffee Hour Chat. I'm Reverend Andrew Conley Holcomb. I'm with the Reverend Alyssa DeWolf. And we are doing uh, episode two, uh, or the second part of our uh, conversation about being a white church that's committed to being an anti-racist church. And so this episode is really focused on what are some of the steps that white churches can take to be actively anti-racist. We wanted to give some practical things that people and communities can do um, beyond just the theoretical. Um, as, a, as a Christian community, as a, as a people of faith, we think that we should ground ourselves in these ideas of repentance and grace. Um, repentance, recognizing the fact that, as we've said before, we're all sinners. We all mess up. We fail each other. We, we fail in our work for God. Um, and that that's okay. What is not okay is when we just sort of get stuck in the failure or we ignore failure altogether. Exactly. We pretend um, that it doesn't happen to we, us. We pretend we're, you know, we're good, but I'm a good person. Um, so really like leaving out that call of repentance and repentance at its core is about t- turning around. Right. Um, when you look at the root of the word, it's literally about changing direction in one's life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not even necessarily like about, it's not necessarily negative. Right. Um, repentance is, is a positive thing. I think we all want to be better people. We all hopefully are willing to be transformed by God, especially, and by our communities. Well, and I think the thing we get hung up on is we, we think we have to be whole and complete people, and anytime we're wrong, it's a threat to our identity as whole and complete people. And we're inherently incomplete right? We see now as though through a mirror darkly, then we will see face to face. But now we've always got an incomplete grasp of reality. And I think if we can let go of our idea that we have to be whole and complete and good and moral and instead can be loving and kind and compassionate and generous and just, which are actually behaviors instead of identities, we can let go of this and allow ourselves to be corrected. I mean, I think one of the most loving things that someone can do for you is correct you if they do it in a way that demonstrates their love and concern for you. Right, exactly. And so I think as Christian people, it is incumbent upon us first and foremost to examine ourselves, our thoughts, and just acknowledge the places that we're inconsistent, but like not just acknowledge them internally. One of the things I love about step work is that you have to actually write that stuff down and then say it out loud to another person you have to seek people out exactly yeah exactly i mean like yeah 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 god knows your internal thoughts and stuff but if you don't say it out loud it isn't real for you but when you actually have to name it out loud i think it really changes the way that you experience it and it it has more it's just real to you in a really different way and so you're responsible to it in a really different way and jesus reminds us you know linking this with grace that like if you're, you're forgive your brother seven times, 77 times, you know, that repentance and grace is, is a continual process and that we continually repent, but we also continually receive the grace of God, right? That there is always forgiveness as long as we're willing to be transformed. And so we have to practice them at the same time. It can't just be this focus on failure and like getting it right as if there's some like perfect way of being or doing things but more of this reality of like okay we acknowledge the fact that we're gonna fail but we are working to transform ourselves to be better and better and the way we transform ourselves is through this grace that god has given us and that we in turn are meant to give each other right yeah there is no repentance without grace because if there weren't grace repentance would just be shame and god's not in the shame game yeah um, and shame usually doesn't help anyone or anything. <laughs> Absolutely not. And certainly in the issue of racial justice work, once you're engaged in shame, you're focused back on yourself mm-hmm. and you're not participating in the beloved community anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first and foremost thing that people can do is educate themselves. And there's a lot of different ways that we can educate themselves. You do not need to reinvent the wheel. Mm-mm. There there are many, many a wheel out there. <laughs> the work has already been done. The people have written the books. They have their YouTube channels, their Instagrams. Like You can find great educative materials on every single platform. But there's a couple things that, that you can do um, creatively that are specific to your community. And mm-hmm. I know you want to talk about... Yeah, I think one of the big ones that 
I think really commits a faith community to the work is just learning the specific history of the property that they own. Like your church isn't nowhere, it's somewhere. And every somewhere has a history and every somewhere in the United States has a racist history. And here in the Pacific Northwest, our racist histories are usually tied to our relationships with the indigenous communities that own this land before we took it from them. Yeah. Um, and so if my church, for example, is on lands that are historically owned by the Duwamish tribe, a tribe that has never been formally recognized by the United States government and never formally ceded control of its property to the government. And just knowing that and trying to say that when we're together, I mean, I struggle to remember to say that every time we're in worship and I fail most of the time. But when I remember to say that, it just brings this kind of like, oh yeah, we're part of this history too. Even though, you know, we've been here for 125 years. Well, yeah, but people were here before that. (laughs) Well, I just think like I grew up, you know, going around the Southwest a lot and like, you know, petroglyphs are basically like ancient cave paintings. And we forget that like people have been inhabiting the United States, what we classify as the United States for thousands of years. Right. Um, uh, I had an experience when I was pastoring in Santa Barbara, we were celebrating our 150th anniversary and our church like first pastor was stolen from the church in santa barbara i mean san bernardino i get the sbsb mix mixed up and so for fun we we because we both were kind of celebrating our same anniversaries at the same time we swapped pulpits and so i i'm a history nerd and i did this deep dive into you know what was going on at the time um and what what was happening in in the state of california which that was around the time that it was becoming a state And I discovered this information that, so I grew up in Orange County, California, which not really today, these days, but mostly has been like the most conservative county in all of the state of California. And San Bernardino is within Orange County, California. And in doing my research around what was happening around the 1800s when these two churches were formed, which was post-Civil War, found out that Orange County was a hub for Confederate soldiers. No way, really? And it makes so (laughs) much sense. Yeah, San Bernardino ended up being the headquarters of the um, California Confederate Party. Wow. Um, That also, there was a lot of interesting things that were happening around Los Angeles with the Confederacy and with, um, you know, racist um, groups and stuff. But but when I, I was like, I grew up in Orange County. I went to school for... The, all 18 years of my schooling, you know, public schooling life, <laughs> never once did I hear about the Confederacy's presence in the state of California and the race relations that were going on in the state of California during that time. And it has forever, like, changed the way I look. And, and like I said, makes so much sense about modern politics that things don't evolve out of nowhere like there is a history and when you're in communities that you know are more conservative or have more leanings towards um overt racism and and those different kinds of things is like look in the history because there's going to be a roadmap for how things got there i mean what's going on in minnesota right now what was hap- what's been happening in ferguson missouri um for the last couple of years those are not isolated incidents they're based on decades upon decades if not century of um injustice in- injustice and internalized racism um and people get frustrated with like why do we keep having to talk about slavery but it's like slavery still permeates every aspect of our culture and, and, I mean, slavery is still around um, globally. Well, and so let me name just, like, one place that I was educated just the other day. I saw someone put, put in a post about the unrest, like, a critique of Andrew Johnson as a president. And I was like, oh, they must mean Andrew Jackson because of all of his hateful rhetoric and activity against Native Americans. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I don't know anything about Andrew Johnson. He came He's after Lincoln. Lincoln. Yep. And he undid Reconstruction. Yep. And it's like... Shit, that's an American president I don't know anything about who probably had the most impact on the yep. basically the setup of the uh, generational impoverishment of black folks post-slavery. Johnson pretty much set up what we now know as segregation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know and, anything and about him. that too is, you know, when we, we look at like Obama and then now Trump and we're like, what the WTF? Right. Um, 
Lincoln and Johnson is like almost an exact parallel of, you know, you have a president that is focused on like justice, you know, in whatever. Right. We can nuance with, with their nuances. But yeah. but then you have the follow up president right. is like a complete swing in the other direction. Right. Um, so this is not the first time that this has happened. Sure. And obviously, like a way of educating ourselves is, you know, learning from history and learning from what has come before, but even more than like, okay, like don't make the same mistakes as your ancestors. I think it's more about understanding how we got to where we are right. now right. and that we are part of a legacy right. and we are adding to that story and that legacy right. and that we have, you know, we talk about children who are born into families of addiction. Like you, there is always that ever present um, possibility of um, being an addict oneself. Right. But there is also ways and means of breaking the cycle. Right. And so how do we break the cycle? Well, we have to identify and understand the cycle. Yes. It's interesting you bring up that kind of swing of the pendulum. Uh, Ibram Kendi's book, uh, Stamp from the Beginning, is really all about the, the swing in American politics between ra- racist progress and anti-racist progress. And Kendi basically argues that all of American history is just both the advancement of racism and the advancement of anti-racism and that they duel with each other. And so people, like you said, the surprise about Trump's election should not have surprised us at all if we were actually students of American history instead of the sanitized version that we get in school. Um, There's a lot of great books out there that you can read. Um, We have a couple kind of off the hand recommendations. Um, My life was totally changed in seminary when I read Uh, Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited and Howard Thurman was a huge influence on Martin Luther King Jr. and I know a lot of people sort of focus in on Martin Luther King Jr. but um, Howard Thurman really that it's a really small book you can read it pretty quickly um, but it's I literally just put it in my my order. Um, uh, I also um, had the privilege of having the um, um, Dr. Emily Towns was a professor at my seminary when I was oh, there. And God. she's now, I think, in Vanderbilt. Yes, I could be I wrong. Think yeah. right. I think you're right. Um, but if you're looking for a black woman's perspective, in, in specifically in um, Christian theology, yes. you can't go wrong with her. Yeah. Elizabeth Johnson has also been very powerful yes. um, in thinking both about feminist theology and womanist theology. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites is, um, actually, she's a Seattle resident. Uh, Gemma Oluo uh, wrote a book that got very popular recently called uh, So You Want to Talk About Race. It's not specifically Christian-linked, but both she and Ibram Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which were both released very recently, um, are very confessional about their own process as people of color coming to understand how they had internalized racism and how they participated in perpetuating racist thinking and how they've been on this journey of acting, internalizing, and then acting differently in their kind of growth. And I think their very confessional works are a good entry point for folks that haven't thought about this much. If you're ready for a relatively confrontational book, uh, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, which I see sitting on your table right over there, um, is also a really powerful book that if you're ready to be challenged, that is a great book to read. If you're not ready to be challenged, I think you'll probably resist most of what she has to say. But if you're ready for it, I feel like that's a next step once you're willing to step into this pool. And we were talking about sort of the, the deepening education from just, you know, how many books do you have on your (laughs) bookshelf how many books have you read to really like how do you internalize these works how do you allow them to transform you to change you um and also how do you allow these to be catalysts to conversations in your life yes um and so finding maybe you know start a book club if you want at your church at your church ask your pastor hey i want to start a book club around this particular work Mm. will you help me make it happen um, and, and really do it from within your church and think about it as a part of your Christian education. Think about it. Mm-hmm. How do you make this part of your faith formation and not just an intellectual exercise to demonstrate that you're a woke church? And if your pastor is not doing book studies or talking about theologians or people of color or women or queer ideas, then like challenge your pastor Please. to... to 
to make that a priority. I mean, I've done a, I've done Jesus and disinherited in, in the church and it was, and it was an incredibly powerful experience for everyone who read it. Yeah. Um, and people had like, it was hard for some people mm-hmm. because some of the things he talks about is, you know, very, can be very far from the white experience, but, Absolutely. but I don't think anyone in that group who read that book walked away the same. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the other things you can do is, especially if you live close to a metropolitan city, is oftentimes there are museums and cultural festivals that um, you should go to. We have an African-American museum here in Seattle. Um, We have many different cultural festivals that you can go to. Um, We have longhouses for our indigenous communities that will often open their doors and do educational programming Mm -hmm. and um, go to them. Yeah. one of the I want to actually say this out loud on recording so that I have accountability to do it. I had this fantasy of this idea. There's a log house museum in West Seattle that's like the history of West Seattle, and I really want to take a group from the church to the log house museum and then drive a couple miles down the road to go to the Longhouse Museum, that's the Duwamish tribe space, and compare the way that they tell the history of mm. that area. From the log house museum to the long house museum. L-O-G to L-O-N-G. Exactly. <laughs> and so I'm I'm saying this out loud because I'm convicting myself that mm-hmm. after the restrictions are lifted, I'm going to plan an educational event in my church for my people to really think about wh- how is this narrative of our history told and how, how are we participating in a narrative that leaves people out. Yeah. When I lived in New York City, um, I went to a lot, a lot of museums. But one of the the coolest museums was the um, the Latin Latinx Museum that's up kind of near Harlem. Um, and they did like it was really ironic because they did a whole um, special exhibit on Chicano and Chicana art, which is based in Los Angeles, Southern California. So I was a <laughs> Southern California in New York looking at. SoCal influenced art in New York City, <laughs> but it was extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's really important to do that. And and ha- you know most of the time too, you're gonna get if you go to the festivals, you get really good food. Yeah. Oh, amen. Like, <laughs> um, so there are so many other different ways in terms of educating oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the things that you lifted up specifically was really thinking about often race in the United States is a black white. Mm-hmm. And we lose, that is an important thing to remember because America was founded on anti-black racism. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's absolutely important for us to lift that up. And America was founded on anti-indigenous racism as well. And so I think we need to make sure that as we're engaging, um, dismantling whiteness and white supremacy, we need to remember that we're not just talking about black folks. We're yes. talking about uh, indigenous folks and Hispanic folks. We're talking about Central and Latin America. We're talking about uh, diverse cultures in Asia and Southeast Asia that have influenced the United States in various ways. I mean, here in Pacific Northwest, we have a huge Pacific Islander community. Absolutely. Um, and the role of the church, the role of the United Church of Christ in American Samoa is very important and often not lifted up. Well, the role that, I mean, the church has done some really effed up things throughout <laughs> history. But I'm going to highlight Understatement some, highlight of the episode. Busy. But we had, a, we had a church when I, when I was in Southern California, um, Nevada Conference with the UCC. We had a church that was closing. And it was, a, um, oh my gosh, I want to make sure I get this right. Well, the, so the, this church helped um, a Japanese church that was in town that most of their members got rounded up and taken to the internment camps during World War II. And they um, protected, this this white church protected the Japanese church's building as Mm. well as all of the stuff and like people's goods that they put in that building. Because we we forget in that that sort of silent moment of history is that for those Japanese families who were put into these camps, a lot of their homes and their businesses were taken over by other mostly white people and they never got their stuff back. Right. They lost their their buildings. They lost everything. 
Um, and so literally there were people who would like walk around the building every day to make sure that like people didn't break in and like steal their stuff and to like protect the physical space. Um, like these are examples. I mean, that is stuff that we need today. Like white churches, white folks to stand up and say like, we're here as a barrier, as a protection for, for our churches of color. Um, yeah, that's a whole other. Yeah. One, I think, and the only way we're going to know how to be in that solidarity, I think, is if we know those histories of those, Mm -hmm. those folks. And so you listed like the indigenous history of the United States Mm -hmm. and thinking about, um, how, who, who are our neighbors and how did they get here? Cause we are, we all got here from somewhere and somebody carried us on their shoulders to get here. And I think knowing those histories is really critical. I mean, in terms of theology, too, there's, like, womanist theology, which is black women's theology. There's mujerista theology, which is Latinx um, women's theology. Um, There's Han, H-A-N, which is a strain of um, mostly Korean, but it Mm -hmm. also shows up in other um, Asian country strains. Uh, One of the best classes I took in seminary was on um, Asian theologians and theology. Mm -hmm. And uh, we read you know, all of these works and, and the, the concept of Han, which is about suffering and, yeah. and how it just completely transformed the way that I thought about the cross and about the idea mm-hmm. of suffering. And there's some really cool books that you can find too. Andrew on, Park, I think is one of the authors that I read on Han theology. Yeah. But, um, but also on the, on African American perspective on theology, yeah. I mean on, um, crucifixion. Yes. Specifically. Uh, James Cohn has a relatively recent book called the cross and the lynching tree. Mm-hmm. And the first chapter of that really lays out what he finds and what I find to be a, a powerful parallel between the cross of Jesus and the lynching tree of the United States. So it's really, you know, there's queer theology, like, and that's just specific to theology. So there's a lot of stuff out there. Let Google or whatever other search drive be your friend. Ask your friends, yeah. ask your pastor, ask um, folks what they recommend. And call your pastor in. Call your pastor in. Um, like I would love it. I would love it if people in my church said, you know, I don't, I don't know enough about this. Will you help me make this happen? Mm -hmm. I, that would delight me to no end. Yeah. So on behalf of your pastor who I may not, I may know, and I may (laughs) not know, tell them I told you to go push them. Uh, vote. Good God. Participate in the electoral process. And participate in your local election. Yes. Yes. In that grasp, like, like real on the ground, direct change is going to happen first and foremost through your local municipalities. And so, and those people need your votes. So like they will listen to you. They will take meetings with you. The people that knock on your door will spend 15 minutes talking to you. And God, the last election cycle that came around, whenever somebody came to my door, I asked them pointed questions about how they were going to deal with certain particular issues around disparities in education and disparities in access to resources. And if they weren't versed in it, it was like, all right, well, I know whose interests you're working for, right? So I think that, like, in fine, it's not very hard to find out what these people's platforms are. And it's yeah. not terribly hard to find out how to contact them because they really want to... They want to curry your favor. And not don't just vote, but um, call your representatives. After they're elected. <laughs> mail, you know, write to your representatives. Like, th- we, we often think, like, it doesn't matter, but it really does. It does. It's it huge. does matter. Yeah. And so that is definitely, like, in, t- in talking about privilege, like, if you can't do anything else, you can pick up the phone. You can yeah. write an email. You can make sure you go and vote. And the, the more cumbersome it is for you to do it, the more it counts for them. It's like sending an email is a pretty low level, mm-hmm. but like writing a letter or making a phone call or showing up in person, whatever ups the level of inconvenience for you, ups the impact of that action for your representative. So yes, do it as it's convenient, but like if you can do it a little bit less conveniently, it will actually have more impact on your representative. And get to know what the like bills and different um, issues are coming up in your local and state and federal government. Like you can you can look up what you know your state government is going to be talking about mm-hmm. in the Senate or in the House, and and what bills are coming forward, and and you can then have a say in what and how your representative responds. Sure. And I would add to this too: if you're in a community that 
um, there are voter rights injustices happening um, where there people are not having access to being able to vote or ID laws or whatever, you know, different things are going on is use your privilege to advocate for the for folks who can't um, who are having problems with being able to access their voting rights. Right. One, um, just to nuance that even further, if you live in the United States, you live somewhere where there's active voter suppression happening because of the fact that felons are barred for life from voting. Mm -hmm. And so anyone that's branded a felon in the United States is barred almost, I think, across the board in all 50 states from participating in the electoral process. So you're already part of a state that is actively engaged in voter suppression. Which... Talk about an example of like white privilege and racism because who is the majority of people who are in prison is people of color. Right, exactly. So you're barring a large number of people of color from participating in politics. Right. And that leads to the other thing is like as we're educating ourselves about these programs and platforms of government, also making sure we're connecting with POC-led organizing groups that have really thought about this stuff and how it impacts their communities disparately from white communities. So I think sometimes we're going to read it through our lens of white culture and white understanding, and we're not really going to see the consequences of this legislation when it goes in because we'll only see it from within our own frame. So making sure you're consuming critique and analysis outside of your frame of reference. Another thing you can always do is donate your time, donate your money. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are financially privileged, um, give to nonprofits that are you know either run by or affecting people of color. Um, a big thing that people need right now is um, giving to bail bonds. Um, bail bonds in themselves is a form of injustice because it keeps people stuck in jail for longer than they need to. So somebody who is more privileged, who has more financial access, they can basically like they pay to get out of jail. Right. And you, you it's the time between when you're waiting for your court appearance. Right. Um, please tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but I think I have this right. Yeah, you pay to get out until <laughs> you, your trial. You, you pay to get out until your, your trial, but what happens then is that people get stuck in the system. Um, and so it keeps... There, there's a lot of ways that this just trickles down into um, many different forms of injustice. But being able to pay to get people out of jail, um, it, it helps in so many different ways. The one compassionate program that I heard about that I really appreciated um, and actually gave money to last year was the Black Mama Bailout uh, for Mother's Day. Mm. Trying to, It was an organization that was gathering together resources to bail out black mothers um, so that they could go be with their families while they were awaiting trial for whatever crime they had been accused of. And I just thought, God, you just think about the, the impact on a family, the mm-hmm. impact on, on children and on the person who is incarcerated waiting for their trial separate from their community, from their work and from their kids. Like I just, being a parent myself, I just, I can't, I I can't imagine that suffering. One of talking about uh, resources of educating yourself, one of the most like powerful, honestly, it was hard to read, um, is the book Evicted, which mm. goes into um, the the legal issues and injustices around eviction and that and just how it just completely messes the system up. And, and one of the things that he says in the book is, you know, they say that prisons is like the pipeline for, for black people males mm-hmm. well eviction is the pipeline that black women get stuck oh in my God. um and you just think of like you know coming back to bail bonds but like of a of a single parent or if you're the breadwinner right. and then you get stuck in jail for this longer period of time that you you can't work you right. can't financially contribute if you don't have a support system behind you your kids end up in foster care which is extremely traumatizing for you know the foster system itself is so so messed up um so so it's it's a simple way to to help and there's a lot of other nonprofits. um figure out what your local nonprofits are in your personal community and ways that you can engage with with those nonprofits. uh so many churches they're like i want to do ministry i want to like i want to help fill in the blank and and i really encourage people is like don't create your own program like yes. go and partner with some 
program that's happening. And and if you need to create your own program because there really is like nothing there, yeah. um, then like bring allies from your community alongside you. Yes. Co-create the program. I think that's one of the big things that frustrates me about the progressive church is we get so aligned with our social justice platforms that we think that that's why we exist. And we're never going to build houses better than Habitat for Humanity, right? <laughs> we're never going to distribute food better than the food bank. So what are we good at? We're good at loving people and teaching them about the inclusive love of God. So do that and then support or show up to participate in other people that are organized with other people that are organized to do other things. But like, yeah, you're right. I think we waste so much time trying to be all of the good things instead of really engaging in the thing that we're really good at. The most powerful thing we can do is show up. Yes, yes. Just show up. The thing I've been thinking about a lot about contributing to nonprofits that are doing work is thinking about diversifying my investment to be both downstream and upstream, right? So the downstream stuff is like the uh, the urgent need, right? The person who is actively drowning in the water right now, right? So talking about feeding programs and homeless shelters and that kind of direct aid and service. But then the upstream pieces are the legislative pieces, but they're also like, what are the, what are the, um, the programs that are investing in after school enrichment or in um, engaging children with a healthy sense of relationships and boundaries? Like um, what are the things that are working on anti-poverty or working on um, re-entry after prison so that people have opportunities to grow and experience redemption um, in the world rather than kind of ending up back downstream again? Like how are we breaking those cycles like you mentioned earlier? And there's really creative ways, too, that churches, I know your church is in conversation about this, but um, a lot of churches who are in in communities where there's not affordable housing, who Mm -hmm. have property, and looking at ways that they can use their property to build affordable housing. Things that are not explicitly religious, you know, but at the core of them are founded in the principles of Christ and unconditional love and and all these, you know, this repentance and this grace. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Invest, invest. Yeah, and and um, you mentioned this earlier, but um, not just investing in organizations that are like doing good work, but like spend your money, give your money to businesses that are doing, creating consumer goods that you love, but are they're aligned ethically, mm-hmm. right? So like eat at restaurants that are owned by people of color, um, you know, and uh, buy uh, goods and services that are performed by or created by people mm-hmm. of color, like. Who are you hiring if you hire a house cleaner? Who are you hiring if you're hiring a painting company? Like there's so many kind of mundane places that we spend money that we could just be more intentional about making that sure that that money flows in an equitable way. And again, do your research. Like yeah. it's it's not that hard to figure out where there are businesses near you and businesses that you can buy online that are owned by people of color that... Um, and if you can't find it online and you have a business that you love and you want to make sure, like, ask them. Go in and ask them. Right. Um, there may be a Black Chamber of Commerce where you live, actually, yeah. where an, or an actual organization that's designed to elevate and amplify Black, black-owned businesses or, or POC-led businesses. And again, remember, we all I always slip into this Black-white thinking and we need to make sure that we're resisting that as much as we're acknowledging it. Another thing that is really important too is investing in um, people of color entertainment. Yes. Um, be you know the more we show demand for you know whether it's television, um, I think of like comic books. I mean literature. Like like you, you should educate yourself with you know uh, intellectual. What what am I trying to say? Intellectual theological educational literature. Right. But like. You should also like read non read fiction authors right. that uh, from people of color like, um, you know there there are poet laureates of color. Yeah. Um, look at look at poetry. Look at visual arts. Um, Have you ever heard of the Bechdel test? Yeah. Okay, so for those of you that don't know about the Bechdel test, the Bechdel test is a great way to examine a piece of um, art, usually television, movies, drama, something like that. Uh, for the presence of patriarchy. 
And so it's kind of a four-step process. You ask yourself, is there a woman who's speaking to another woman about something other than a man, right? That's a four-step process. Is there a woman in this? Does she speak? Does she speak to another woman? And does she speak to another woman about something other than a man? You can apply the Bechtel test uh, using the lens of people of color, right? Are there people of color who speak to other people of color about issues other than racism, right? And I think that if you start applying that, you will realize the real dearth of that in most of the media that we consume. Yeah. You know, things that just center the lives of, of black people, center the lives of Hispanic people, center the lives of Asian people and queer folks and, you know, like center their real whole lives instead of just their suffering. I was also going to say, be careful that you're not um, only consuming stereotypical media because I know that like, especially within the Latinx community, there's, there could be issues with um, Latinx and, and um, Middle Eastern communities of like only being seen as the villain, whether it's, right, you know, Middle right. Eastern, like their only role is the terrorist or right. Latinx communities, their only role is that the, the drug cartel. Right. Um, right. And so you also kind of, we were talking about, uh, uh, what would you call it? Violence porn or oh, torture, torture, porn. like suffering porn, right. like kind of thing. Like, like you want to be careful that you, the, that you're not, consuming a particular narrative that is not necessarily true to the daily lives of people. That's not just an extremist situation. And this is really doing this is about affirming our core theology because our core theology is that every person is a beloved child of God and every person has a complicated emotional life. And when we consume stereotypes, what we're doing is we're minimizing the full humanity of people because we're saying, oh, they only operate this way or they only care about these things. And if we're not consuming the full gamut of emotional experience for groups of people, then we're essentializing people to only having certain emotional experiences. Well, and also ask questions of the material that you're watching, yes. especially your kids material. So, oh God, yeah. you know, Disney Plus came out and like my family and I, of course, like have been watching a lot of Disney movies. But I, I like started realizing pretty quickly that like a, a bunch of the movies that were that are made about like culturally specific storylines. So thinking about like Mulan, for example, um, have very little people of that background voicing the characters. <laughs> um, sure. And like you have all of these white actors playing you know roles of non-white people and i'm like you couldn't find one person of color to voice this character one and this is not like you know early generation disney like this is like 1990s early 2000s disney like they've gotten a lot better you know having the the remake of lion king with actually like african-american voice actors and and you know, uh, Tiana. they're doing the same thing. Interesting, you mentioned Mulan because they're doing a reboot of Mulan and trying to cut out like Mushu the dragon and all these kind of tokenistic, yeah, um, pieces of uh, Asian culture. But, but anyway. Mushu the dragon is voiced by um, Eddie Murphy, yeah, Eddie Murphy, <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Um, which okay, plus point for like a person of color, <laughs> but like you couldn't find one person to voice i just right. yeah and 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 that and i don't and for generations we we would have not even noticed right there was a great episode just to pull in some more pop theology there was a great episode of master of none that was all about this for indian americans mm. and about how so many indian americans in popular culture are played by white people um and how there's so few indian American actors who have kind of made it to that mainstream of, of Hollywood folks. There also is a great documentary about how um, in entertainment Indian Americans are seen as just um, what is the guy's name from The Simpsons? Oh, uh, Apu. Apu. That that is like the quintessential like Indian. Yeah. Indian. So every inter, you know audition that you'd go into, it was like, can you be more like Apu? Um, so like, these are things that we need to be aware of For sure. and that we need to be careful to not take that narrative as, as truth. And it's so important and it's so powerful. Like it's not just about entertaining ourselves, but representation matters. Right. And the more we put our money towards those 
mediums, the more they will produce them. I mean, right. you hear from so many, like there's been this big movement of women led superheroes and for, for most of the entertainment industry, they would tell writers and people who were like, I want to make, you know, whatever, a Wonder Woman movie or something like that. And they'd be like, well, nobody's going to go watch it. Right. Exactly. That was the, you know, we're only going to invest in this if it'll net a return. And so you as the consumer actually have the power to influence what's produced yeah. because they're only producing it so that people will consume it. I have one more specific thing I want to lift up. My wife works at Seattle University and through uh, the uh, arts leadership program there, there was a, uh, a piece that went up that's called Abstractions of Black Citizenship, African-American Art from St. Louis. And so if you go to abstractions.black forward slash events, you'll find this. And it's a collection of uh, abstract art pieces that were done by uh, black St. Louis, Missouri-based artists. And really it's exploring this idea of how do black aesthetic practices emerge from that region to abstract structures? And how might attention to abstraction make aesthetic, geographic, and political space for black presence and black citizenship. So even in the abstract art world, you know, like I think sometimes we boil down like, oh, art has to be about this topic in order to inform us. But in reality, art is an expression of people's experience. And I think one of the problems of whiteness is it has insulated itself from non-white experiences of reality. And so no matter what art form we consume, if we consume art forms that are coming from the life and experience of non-white people, it will inherently kind of grow our understanding of the world and our vision of reality. So anyway, I just wanted to lift that specific one up because I thought it was really cool. And they, it was going to be in the art gallery at Seattle U, but because of COVID-19, they put it all online. So abstractions dot, uh, dot black... I want to make sure I have this right. I'm sorry. Abstractions.black forward slash events. I think too, like um, fostering an awareness of how even our hobbies are dictated by privilege and racism. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw with um, um, Ahmaud Aubrey mm-hmm. who, who died while out running. Yeah. And then those conversations come up too about running culture and how running culture has is very white. It's white culture. And you, you see that with like yoga like yoga has been predominantly taken over by by middle class white women, right. um, and camping. There's there's a lot of really interesting stuff you can read on camping culture and how you know there was for a a long long time for black families they had their own um, like kind of like triple A for for black families who wanted to go out camping that designated like spots that were safe for black families. Mm-hmm. And there's been this like. Um, history that that pervades these things that like you may you may you know love this sport or love this activity but like ask yourself too like have you seen representation within that of people of color and if not why is that Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and it's not to say like oh you have to stop doing yoga because there's you know you don't have a person of color yoga instructor but it's just it's just an awareness to to keep in the back of your mind which that in itself is like a very interesting uh case study because it's like origins are from india and then it's been completely gentrified and it's had been uh all of its spiritual component all of the theological engagement that yoga is very much a part of has been completely removed and kind of commodified and it becomes like the you know the ubiquitous statue of buddha in the middle of a white person's serenity garden and again, it's not to say that you can't get something out of that and, it's, and then that it's not, you know, important to you, but just like know where it comes from, know the background information, read the, read the small print. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because those things do have histories. And I think, again, this all circles back around where we started, which is the history of things. Like things didn't just randomly appear. They have arcs and trajectories. And part of the role of whiteness, part of its real work is to dis disconnect up us from history and give us things that are uh, independent, uh, void of history, and therefore become kind of disposable or they're useful in, in whatever way we want. And so we don't have to respect where they come from. We don't have to respect who created them. We don't have to give those folks credit. I mean, this, this goes all the way back to uh, the creation of algebra and the telescope. Like so many 
modern inventions were created by people of color and then stolen by Europeans and then used. And then it's like, oh, well, this is ours and we've always had it. Oh, rock and roll. The <laughs> origins of rock oh, and God, roll. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was playing this song Shake, Rattle and Roll for my son, son the other night. And, you know, you pull it up and you have the original version, um, which is by a, a black artist. And then you have the co-opted version, which right. is the like doo-wop white group. Right. Um, and, you know, like I said, most of rock and roll has been grounded, uh, been stolen from black communities. Exactly. Um, and again, it doesn't mean you don't have to, you, you necessarily have to stop listening to it, but maybe you do. Maybe there are things, I'm not necessarily saying rock and roll, but like maybe there are things in your life that like in educating yourself, you have to recognize that you can no longer participate or consume those systems. Right. And that needs, I think one of the things that a lot of progressive white folks do is they learn a thing and then they apply their learning to everybody else. (laughs) And so they say, I now know that you shouldn't do this. And I think that is, that's so hurtful to the cause. I think if you become convicted that something is not for you, then that has full bearing on you. And you should take seriously that now you are convicted that you shouldn't do that. And if you really care about that, then your work should be to educate, not to denigrate. Yes. And I I just feel so strongly about this, that if we're going to be repentant people, we have to let God be the judge and that God is the judge of our own heart. And if we're convicted by God, then that should change how we behave. But we don't get to act as God to other people. We want to be, we want to create systems that are inclusive and are interdimensional and, um, integrated we don't want to create systems that are further divided yes and we and we're not also we also don't want to create monolithic cultures yes 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 you know this is about putting more chairs around the table Mm -hmm. but it's not about everyone having to look the same or act the same around the table yeah absolutely absolutely and i think you can take any hobby in your life and you can find people and organizations and businesses that are run or led by people of color. Like there really is like no excuse to to not have those other voices and influences, because especially in our technological age. Right. Like you can look up and, anything. And I think what we'll find is if you choose to do it in one area, at least this is what I've found. If I choose to do it in one area and I find it wasn't as hard as I thought it was to do, and it was really enriching to do it, then I have the motivation to do it in another area, right? The kind of all or nothing approach that I think a lot of progressive politics does is it's like, it shames us if we're not super woke all the time doing all the things, and then people don't start. Yeah. And I think if we just start, if we just do one thing, we will be shaped by that one thing. And like you said earlier, we'll be shaped by the one thing and then it'll move us to do something else. And we'll be shaped by that thing. I mean, my wife talks about like, she reads one good book and then reads all the books that that author ever wrote because she's like, this book was amazing. And then goes and finds another (laughs) author who's like endorsed by this author. And so it's like that snowball effect, Mm -hmm. right? Like we don't have to get there right now because honestly, we're never going to get there. There is no there there. There's only being on the way. Yeah. And transformation is a process. Absolutely. And that's why we, again, we have to come back to that repentance and grace. It's like, you're going to screw up. You're going to put your foot in your mouth. You're going to do it wrong. You're going to maybe probably hurt some people along the way. But like, if you can ask for forgiveness and acknowledge those failures, you will find the grace to keep going forward. Yeah. And there's going to be people who can't offer that to you. Yeah. There's going to be people that are just, they've been consistently too wounded by somebody that looks like me, sounds like me, acts like me, and screws up like I do, that they're not going to be, I may, they may never be able to forgive me. And that is something I'm going to have to live with mm-hmm. and not have it stop me from moving on. I, I think that's one of, probably one of the most important things we can say too, is like just because you've done the work doesn't mean that you're entitled you're entitled but also that like like what am I trying to say that don't like people of color aren't gonna be like oh my gosh thank you so much that like you read that book that was like I just feel (sighs) so much better about life because you did this thing like 
again, like it's about changing your heart, your mind, and then integrating those changes into the way you live your life. And in doing so, that's what changes community. And in some regards, you do take a bigger, more um, visual, visible stand, but a lot of the stuff is small changes. And it's really like too about getting out of the way and making room for people of color to to do the work and to be the people that they need to be and not requiring them to do more work to make you feel more comfortable or better. And not requiring them to affirm you. Yeah. And I think that's just like part of the endemic codependency that our culture is so filled mm-hmm. with. I mean, I think this is one manifestation of this greater spiritual issue about how we need other people to affirm us in order for us to be worthy. And when other people don't affirm us, we all of a sudden can so easily question our worthiness. Our worthiness does not come from people. It comes from And also from question God. the work. Like, oh, yeah. no, oh, yeah. he's affirming sure. me, so why should I do this anyway? Yeah. Like, I haven't gotten my, like, ribbon of honor. Right. Like, you know. Because I was really doing this so that you would tell me that I was good or give yeah. me props. And so why it's should like I do It's like earning brownie points yes. into heaven. Like, there's no brownie yeah. points. This is about, again, Jesus calls us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done right. on earth as it is in heaven. This is kingdom work. Right. This is generational work. This right. is legacy. And, and we, and and we do absolutely... not tell people how many people of color friends or colleagues you have. <laughs> Just don't do it. Specific piece of advice there. Same thing with, with gay people. Don't, you're, it doesn't make you an advocate just because you have minorities in your life. <laughs> you I gotta mean, do the work. Well, yeah, I think when you want to say that, ask yourself why. Yeah. Am I trying to prove myself to this person? And... And really, I think, again, for me, it goes back to the only entity that I need to prove myself to is God. Yes. Like, I'm accountable to God. And so if somebody else doesn't affirm me for doing this or somebody else critiques me or says I'm full of shit or whatever or I'm trying to perform wokeness, I need to listen to that. I need to take it to God and say, God, who knows all of my thoughts, who knows me from before I was born, who's part of this journey with me. Is there something in this that I really need to receive? Or is this a, a manifestation of this other person's suffering and hurt? And if it is, God, I, I need you to be at work mm-hmm. in healing them. But if there's something that I need to learn from you, I need you to teach. I need you to be the one that mm-hmm. teaches it to me. Use their words to teach me, but you're the one teaching me. I think that that is so critical for me that if we don't have an engaged spirituality, I don't know how we can be anti-racist. At least I couldn't be anti-racist without Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I think on that note, that's, yeah. that's a great way to end the conversation. Again, we probably missed something. There's of probably even better like Guaranteed. resources and stuff. So we would we again we ask you to join the conversation. Um, let us know what we what we missed, what we screwed up on. Yeah. Um, show us your repentance and grace as we continue to try and do the best we can do for God and for yeah. the kingdom to come. Until next time, folks, we love you. Share, subscribe, review, pass it on. Yes, please, please.